to start a little bit different. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you all to give an answer out loud simultaneously. Would you want to try it? Now, it's a little bit of a personal question. So um, if you want, if you could, you can just kind of like cover your mouth so you can say it loud enough, but so soft that no one, your neighbor doesn't hear you, okay? So it's up to you. It's a little bit personal. And, and the desire, my desire is there's no right or wrong answer. I don't want you to think deeply about it. Probably with this simple question, you would have a different answer if you like took a long time to think about it. It's a little bit deeper, but I'm going for your first reaction your initial thought of that, okay? So I'm going to ask the question. I'll go one, two, three, and then you answer it out loud. Okay. You ready? Maybe. Here's the question. Who are you really? One, two, three, go. All right. Did someone say Jedi or was that just in my head? Is that, that was in my head? Okay, someone did say Jedi, yeah, okay. So it wasn't just in my head. Um, so th this is, we're talking about the idea of identity. How do we know, what do we think about ourselves? How do we view ourselves? How do, how do we answer that question, but in a really deep way, in, in, that, in that truest sense of the way? I would guess that you gave a variety of different answers, Right? Maybe you'd rethink the answer and give a different one. But the reason you've given a, a variety of different answers is because our identity or our sense of identity is formed from a number of different places, a number of different sources. I want you to think about those sources with me uh, for a moment. It was Aristotle, very long time ago, he said, we are what we repeatedly do. He was talking about how uh, our, our identity can be formed by those rhythms and those things that we do. Do You've heard we are what we eat, right? You've heard that. I recently heard a TED talk, you are what we, we are what we tweet <laughs> on that. So a, a variety of different uh, forms of identity. Would you think about some layers of identity that some of your answers might have gone with? I, I do think that Foundational for many of us is what we do, both positively and negatively. For many of us, if we go to that first pyramid foundation there, we are what we do. Some of us, it, it's that, that idea, not only what we do repeatedly, but it's that career idea. Maybe some of you said, I'm a salesperson. Uh, I'm a, a teacher. I'm a soldier. Uh, uh, I'm an administrator. Whatever that, many of the, our sense of identity is that career, that idea. Sometimes the do can be negative. It, it can be that, that sense of, I am an addict. I am an alcoholic. I am an adulterer. That sometimes the negative can be so profound, it becomes a deep part of who we are. There's another level of identity I was thinking about, and this idea of passions and talents and personality traits or even physical traits. So maybe some of you said, I am creative. I'm an artist. I'm an advocate. I'm a blonde. 
I don't know, maybe so I didn't, I didn't hear that, but, but sometimes the, the, those, uh, the personality or physical traits that we can identify with those, and they become a part of how we think of ourselves, our sense of identity. There's another really significant layer, and that is how we are in relation to others. Maybe some of you said, I am a grandma, I'm a grandpa, uh, I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a son of. So some of these ideas of our relationship with one another. And then finally, I wish we thought about this more, that some of our identity comes from our relationship with God and how he views us. I am beloved. I am forgiven. I am called. All of those kind of things. Do you know that I am convinced that God cares so very deeply about your sense of identity, of who you believe you are, that, that sense of calling. It was actually John Calvin said there's two great theological enterprises. Uh, not saying it word for word, but generally said uh, these two great things that all theology rests on, to know God and to know yourself. And it's really hard to really excel in one without the other. To know God and to know thyself. God cares that, that deeply. I, I think uh, David had this sense in a profound way of God is our creator. He knit us together and he cares about how we view ourselves and how we live. He said this in Psalm 139, for you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God is creator. He's the, the author of our lives. And he goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knits you together and he has a call and a passion on your life and he's inviting each and every one of us to discover who he has uniquely knit us together, what he's called us to do. Now I think David's words are very contrary to what we hear in culture most often, right? In culture, we don't necessarily hear about God's authorship. What do we hear? Don't let anybody tell you who you are. You decide. You're the captain of your life, right? You get to discover what your passion is, what you love, what you go after. There's very little. It's kind of like uh, Pinocchio saying to uh, Geppetto, yes? Yeah, even though you knit me together, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my... No sense of authorship. No sense that, that God might want to weigh in on who we are. Last week, we began a series we're simply calling more, believing that God has so much more 
for us in this life. We talked about entering the school of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has a number of different ministries and works that he wants to do in our lives. We looked at, in the Old Testament, Saul, King Saul, and we saw the Holy Spirit come and transform his life. We saw all these ministries of the Spirit come and fill Saul, and there was a phrase there that was engaging. And it says, and Saul was changed into a different person. It was new life. That is an identity phrase. That is part of what God was doing. That Saul was living one way and yet God, specifically the Holy Spirit, filled him and brought a new Saul, new life. One of the initial ministries of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do in our lives, it's one of the initial, but then continues for the rest of our lives is the ministry of new life and identity. New life and identity. He wants to to teach you who you truly are. He wants to to form within you the life, the the personality, the uniqueness that he's called and knit in, in you in that special way. He wants you to allow your sense of who you are to be formed, not by the world, but by him. That's the ministry we're gonna look at the Holy Spirit. And in fact, last week we looked at an Old Testament in Saul. We're going to look at Saul again, but a new Saul, a Saul in the New Testament. Not King Saul, but Pharisee Saul. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? And we are going to read about Pharisee Saul And Pharisee Saul was not one of the uh, initial apostles or disciples that walked with Jesus. In fact, he was a Pharisee and he he was zealous for God. He was so zealous for God that he believed that it was his call to save Judaism from the cult of Christianity. It was known as the way. And so this Pharisee Saul was persecuting the church. In fact, he was going after, he was overseeing, uh, uh, taking Christians, early Christians, and imprisoning them, throwing them in jail. Even sometimes he was over the stoning or the killing. He was trying to squelch and kill this early work, this potential cult. Well, Pharisee Saul goes through an identity crisis. He is on his way to a town called Damascus and he has this experience of this light and it's Jesus. And Saul is knocked off his horse. Actually, he doesn't say that he was on a horse, but that's how I always imagine it. That he's off his horse and this bright light comes and he says, and the, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. And then Saul physically cannot see, which I believe was an analogy for him. He was blind to who God really was. 
and who he, Saul, was called to be. So he goes, his companions help him to Damascus. We're going to pick up the story from there. And Saul is praying. He's blind. He cannot see. And in verse 10, it says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple, another disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of uh, Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, the Lord says to Ananias, he has seen a man named Ananias um, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, the church was, had heard of Saul, and they were afraid, and there was fear. And now, God's telling Ananias to go into the lion's den to see the guy who's persecuting Christians. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house And entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Then he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So we see a dramatic transformation and change from Pharisee Saul to the Apostle Paul. Now, we see some immediate identity transformation in Saul to Paul, yet it does, it does happen in a sense of a progressive way for Paul. Yes, he does proclaim Jesus as the Son of God right away. But you know, he's not called Paul until several chapters later in Acts. It was probably a number of years. So we see an immediate identity work, and then we see a transformation of Paul. Listen to what Paul talks about his calling. Right, So his calling, his sense was that he would single-handedly squelch the Christian faith. And then look at verse 15 again. God says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Saul was living a false identity, a false identity sense. Listen to how he talks about his calling towards the end of his life in Acts 20 verse 23. He says this, 
I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Isn't it interesting? He who is imprisoning Christians now as a Christ follower is being persecuted and imprisoned. However, I, Paul, consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, at one point his aim was to squelch the church. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So this incredible transformation of calling, of what Paul would do, of how Paul would live. You could call it career, you could call it profession, you could call it passion, whatever that is, but this transformation. I think the question I have for you this morning is, have you allowed the Lord to transform your calling and your career? Have you allowed the Lord, have you come to the Lord and said, Lord, what am I here for? What are you calling me to do? How have you knit me together? What are the plans, what are the days that you ordained for me in this life? The testimony of Scripture is that he knows each and every one of us intimately and personally. He overlooks no one. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he's calling each and every one of us to play a unique role and place in his kingdom. And I think a a huge mistake is when we fail to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you calling me to do right in this moment, in this season? Could be a big career and calling. It could be in this season and this idea. When I talk with my kids about, about calling in their lives, I don't want them to live how I want them to live or the calling, the career. And I don't even want them to simply live the career that they want to live. I want them to ask the Lord, to seek the Lord. What's he calling you to do? Now, I think there's a mistake that, that, we, that we miss this idea of saying, Lord, you're, you're, you're the author of my life. You've knit me together. What are you calling me to do? That's one mistake. There's another mistake that I think we make in terms of calling and career. And that's when our calling and our career or our doing becomes too central to our sense of identity. That it, 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 it dwells too deep in our soul. The reason I say that is because oftentimes those things can be taken away, that career, and then if it's so central to our understanding of who we are, if that indeed is the base and the foundation and that is taken away, then that leads us into an identity crisis. As Paul experienced, his whole call, his passion, 
was to persecute the church, to live as a Pharisee, and that was taken away, and that it was an important identity crisis. Do, does anyone remember Arsenio Hall? Remember the, woot, 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 yeah, got so annoying after a while, right? And I remember when he, for the, his uh, talk show host initially started, and it was all the craze, and everyone was talking about it and so forth, and, um, and I remember watching the show a few times, and I'm like, he is not a very good interviewer. I, it just didn't flow well. And then I saw him in an, in, in an interview, and he said, by the way, I am a talk show host. And I thought, boy, he, I, I, it was just initially, it just started, and that was like central to his identity. And, and I thought, boy, if that's ever taken away, I bet you he's going to really struggle with that. It only lasted five years, all right? Then they re- tried to restart it a little bit later, it only lasted one year. It, it, if we allow our identity to be so rooted in what we do, good or bad, I I think we're setting ourselves up for that sense of crisis. Yes, what we do is a part of our identity. Yes, our career profession is a part of our identity, but it shouldn't be the central part of who we are. I think in part we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit is allowing our career or our calling or what we do to be a part of who we are. But not our rock. Not our foundation. There's only one rock that's not going to move, that's not going to be taken away. And that's the Lord. It's the only rock. Now, another part of identity that we talked about, we saw in Paul, was passion and zeal. And we see Paul, he is very zealous, is he not? I mean, he's going after it. And he believes he's zealous for the Lord. Listen to how Paul talks about what he calls his previous way of life. He says this, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. Listen to all these identity phrases that Paul is using. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to him. You see, Paul was zealous, right? Going after. And he wanted probably to make a name for himself as of the most righteous and pious and, and full of zeal Pharisees that was going after the things of God. And yet his zeal and his passion was misplaced. It was not rooted in the knowledge of God. It was not rooted in a true relationship with God. My question is, have some of you allowed, some of, we need more zeal and passion in this world, absolutely, without a doubt. 
But have we allowed our relationship with God to transform even our passions, what we're zeal for about, what we what we we care about, what we what we write on uh, Facebook and all those other things that we're about that. And, and sometimes I read those things and go, Ooh, boy, it's great that there's so much passion. Is it connected to God? Some of you remember. Um, Chuck Colson, and in my mind, I've always thought of him, uh, he's passed away, but he, I've always thought of him as a modern-day Saul slash Paul. Um, Chuck Colson was um, in, he was the special assistant to Richard Nixon, and he was known as the mad dog of the White House. He was, at, he was full of zeal for Nixon. He was so full of zeal that Watergate happened. And he got put in jail and he gave his life to Christ. And then God transformed this this zealful Chuck Colson. And he turned his heart towards prison ministry. And he became this zealful advocate for the least of these and has made such a difference in our uh, uh, justice system and our prison system. He, he allowed the Lord to take his personality, his passion, and turn it into a cause that gives God glory and honor and praise. Did you know that God has placed those passions and desires in your heart. That, that the things that makes your heart beat like that, that's from the Lord. That, that sense of maybe some of you are, are so focused on an area of injustice. That sense of, of injustice, did you know, that's from the Lord. He put that in your heart and soul. Our job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And allow him to transform that zeal and then live for him in every way we can. God transforms Paul's relationships with others as well. Part of the humorous part of that story is Ananias. God says, go to Saul. And Ananias is like, what? I don't think so, God. That's... Uh-uh, right? Because the, the, the church was afraid of this dangerous guy. In fact, that would be an issue for Paul early in his ministry is he would try and go to these cities and be part of the community of faith. And they're like, isn't that Saul? And there was resistance there. But in this beautiful way we see in the life of Paul, his relationships with others are transformed. Think of his words to Timothy or Silas uh, and others. And the churches that he founded, like the, the Christians in Thessalonica, he said this to them. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you have become so dear to us. 
God took the relationships in Saul's life, certainly within the church, and transformed them. For sure, Christ transforms our relationships. He brings a deeper love, deeper commitment to one another, deeper union, or he should. A deeper and purer love for our biological family as well. But I think there's a danger in placing, again, allowing relationship with one another to be too central to be our rock, whether spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or, or children. One of the reasons I say that is because relationships are tough. Relationships can be broken. And when our identity is rooted, so rooted in one relationship and that one relationship goes south, what happens? Identity crisis right? Identity crisis. That's why divorce can make or break our lives. The, the loss of a child can make or break our lives. The Apostle Paul had these wonderful relationships with these community of Christians. Do you know that there are also community of Christians that it was not so good between them and Paul, right? The, the community in Galatians, He's like, who's bewitched you? What happened? What's going on? To the community in Corinth, he said, we are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding your affection from us. That's not fair. If the Apostle Paul's identity was centrally rooted in his relationship with the churches, boy, that's an up and down experience. Up, up and down with, with people. Just read a, a powerful article. A friend of mine is a pastor, uh, Tim, call him. And the article was entitled, When Should I Stop Loving My Son? And Tim shared this heart-wrenching rejection that he received from his daughter, who is now his son. False accusations, insistent that, that he does not love Tim anymore, does not want a relationship with Tim. And yet my friend Tim says, I still love him the best way I can because I know that God did not give up on me and will not give up on me. And therefore, I will not give up on my son. He refuses to let go of his son. I confess I was proud of my friend Tim as I read the article. It's his only child. And this broken relationship could have dismantled him. His life, his faith could have destroyed him. Because if his relationship, especially with our children, there's that, that sense that, that when the things are struggling at such a deep level, it can, it can really dismantle our lives and our faith when it happens. It can do it. But I'm so proud of Tim that he's rooted his relationship with his only child 
in his relationship with God. And his rock, of course, he, he struggles, he shares of his struggle and his broken heart. And, and yet, Tim knows who he is. He knows first and foremost that he is beloved of God. And that leads us to the final one is our relationship with Jesus. Of course, it's a story of Paul. Paul goes from persecuting Jesus to proclaiming Jesus. But perhaps more important, Paul's connection to Christ ultimately trumps everything else, even relationships with people. Listen to this, Philippians 3, another uh, identity statement. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was Saul, the Pharisee. And he was living that identity well, better than anybody he knew. And now listen to what he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you hear how central everything else, loss, to the rock, to the foundation of who Paul was, of his life, his calling. I think there's profound biblical wisdom here because in life, just about every other source of identity, every sense of who we are will be challenged, sometimes taken away, sometimes become a huge source of pain and sorrow. I thought about this. I thought this was who I am. I don't get it anymore. What am I supposed to do? Those are all statements of identity crisis. And yet the Lord is saying, I, you know, I am the author of your life. I'm the one who knit you together. I'm the one who ordained your days. I'm the one that placed those passions in your heart. I'm the one that wants to speak and teach you what true life is. Would you but listen? I, I think in terms of cooperating with the ministry of the Spirit that we are called to flip the script in terms of identity. Remember that pyramid that we began with in the beginning? I think that's a cultural pyramid, pyramid that we learn our identity from those places and it's only at the end when we get to God. I think he's calling us to flip the script and begin with the foundation, get that other, that our sense of who we are 
is first and foremost rooted in how God sees us, that we are his beloved, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what broken relationship, no matter what loss of job, no matter what happens in this world, our sense of who we are is rooted and steadfast. He alone is our rock. He alone is that secure place that we know truly who we are. In Christ alone. I'll leave you with this. The, the, the Christian author and psychologist David Bennery wrote this book, The Gift of Being Yourself. And he argues that we have misunderstood the concept of we must become less and Christ must become more. That we've thought that it was a less of an identity and just Jesus. He argues quite convincingly that no, we must lose that sense, that false sense of identity in us. And we must gain the truest sense of identity. And he says this, an identity grounded in God would mean that we would think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind if a pastor ever asks you, he doesn't write this, I'm putting this in there, if a pastor ever asks you to just stay immediately what comes to mind about who you are beyond career and what you do and passion and zeal, behind all of that, that, that the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone deeply loved by God. Amen. And nothing can separate us from the love of God.